welcome to the Nightmare Box presenting The Art of Wargaming. I'm Yagama Lark. And I'm Onifiro. And this is an episode on momentum. But before we get to that, uh, Oni and I are just going to chat a little bit. Um, I'm going to France, so when I, 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 when I get the next episode, when I'm babbling about France, probably using a bit of French very badly, um, I want you to know that it's because I just got back from that neck of the world. Exciting. And I have never traveled internationally before. I've been to Hawaii. And I mean, I guess I went up, I went up to Edmonton, um, up in Canada, before 9-11. So before there was really a border to speak of, you rolled up to the border and there was a Mountie that was like, hey, you got any drugs or firearms, eh? <laughs> you were like, no. And he was like, I have a great time in Canada. And on the way back, they were just like waving you through while they were looking at their Playboy magazine. Like they're just, they're, nobody cared on that border. It was a different world. It was. It was. People I, used to, Oh, please. No, no, I was about to say, but yeah, like my mother used to, when I first started flying, she'd like walk me to my gate. And now like there's a whole generation of kids growing <sighs> up, like having to say goodbye at the security check. And I'm like, dude. That's a little bit real. Yeah. Yeah. It um, is indeed real. Tis indeed real. Yeah, so it's my first trip internationally, and I'm really excited. Like, I got my passport, and I got, like, everything kind of planned for while we're over there in, in France and Amsterdam, and um not sure how much war gaming I'm going to be able to do while I'm over there. I am hoping to stop, like, if I see a war, like a Warhammer 40K <laughs> store, like Games Workshop store, <laughs> just stop off and, like, I don't know, be in one in France Hey, you you take a picture for me if you end up in Normandy. I'm not quite going that direction. Um, we're going to be doing mostly uh, museums this time around. So um, That's the normal person thing to do. It's also my first time. Like, my father is going to be going over to Verdun uh, for a day while uh, Court and I go up to Amsterdam. Mm. Um, but we're also trying to do things that I can do uh, with fairly limited mobility. My leg cooperating uh, as it does. Truly. And I remember, if it was, I did do a Civil War battlefield trip one time where I, we started in South Carolina and we drove up to Baltimore and hit every Civil War battle site on the way. Wow. And there's a lot of walking involved. Yeah, a ton. I've done a little of that, but... Yeah? yeah um, up in Pennsylvania area, oh, the northern nice. states. Yeah, I checked some out. There's... Some crazy, you know, as a young lad, it really makes you think about things differently. Oh, sure. I mean, like, I had been a, a Civil War buff for several years before that and had kind of wondered at some of the things that occurred. For instance, at the very beginning of the Battle of the Wilderness, it basically starts because the two armies are walking through the forest and run into one another, and people start shooting, and then there's a battle. Like, nobody really knew where the other army was. And and, and this whole time I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about it from a Montana boy mindset. Our forests right. here are nice and open. It's lodgepole pines. There's not a whole lot of scrub brush. Like, right, there's just yep. grasses and, and lodgepole and ponderosa. So the idea of a forest though so thick that you literally couldn't see five feet in front of you, or here, really, five or ten feet in front of you, was foreign to me before I went down to the south. That's and you see these battlefields, and you're like, oh, no wonder. No wonder. I, it would take you a month to get through, like, ten feet of this. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, yeah, that's that's a uh, nightmare skirmish-type situation. Oh, totally. And exactly like you're saying, and until you're 
actually surrounded in it and you can put your mind, you know, and all the concept you have been learning and apply that, it won't actually make proper sense. And I mean, I get with the same idea with terrain, think about most people when they think of the Great Plains, they think of something that is flat. Mm-hmm. So when they think about, for instance, General Custer riding up on the Sioux Nation and being surprised by them, they're like, how could they possibly be surprised? I mean, it's completely flat. You could see them from 100 miles away. And you think that way until you've driven across eastern Montana, South Dakota, and you have seen a, a city just be swallowed up over these little rolling hills that are just sort of there. And like suddenly there's Sioux City, the massive city that you didn't see like just five seconds before. Oh, hyper deceptive. Yeah. You know, especially with like a nomadic tribe set up like that. And you go over valley after hill after same nonsense over and over. Nothing, 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 nothing. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, they're right over there, right over that little mound. And he's like, yeah, okay. uh Uh-huh. All right. You know, and it's absolutely that. It's it's conditioning to not expect something in that situation. Sure. Uh, Again, like you said, and kind of like what we were saying with the Civil War, you're just hacking through all this brush or all this forest or just riding over a hill after hill after hill. And then there's the enemy. And, and we're actually going to kind of talk about that a little bit today. Um, but before we do, Oni and I are really excited about an announcement. <sighs> Truly. Uh, it seems like we might actually get to play some video games together. <laughs> Which may seem like a comically simple problem for two people to have. Uh, but in reality, um, you know, one of the things that makes consoles shine compared to PC Master Race, which I totally understand and agree with on the hardware front, um, is the communities. Um, console seems to have these really strangely healthy communities with a lot of positivity pocketed, not in every game, but in a lot of games. And I'm not sure if that's because it has, you know, a family-based dynamic of players, you know, because often consoles are in family homes, you know, in like a larger type situation, you know, but who who knows? I don't know the stats on that. But uh, yeah, um, one of the biggest things is that's why you have a system. You pick your system very often based on, you know, a title specific a console specific title or what your friends are doing like when you first get into consoles like all of my friends were like i started on playstation ironically and then all of my friends played xbox and so i figured out transitioned xbox and then by the time of the new generation of playstation came out the controller felt foreign in my hand i had been (laughs) become a full convert as it were yep you hit the nail on the head like that is 100 percent the other factor you know, is what your friend groups are, are playing, you know, and I, I personally play for two reasons. I play for multiplayer. Mm-hmm. So, well, I guess one reason I play multiplayer. <laughs> so I play either co-op or PVP shows sure. and that's it. So I end up playing console because a lot of my friends play console. You know, you I love the souls games. There's some really bizarre PVP in there. I love for honor, the PC uh, community is just tiny and toxic online. So it's just one of those things that 
I fell just like you into the PlayStation uh, multiplayer. And because of that, Malark and I have been uh, staring at each other from <laughs> two sides of a ravine for quite a few years now. A real uh, Tristan and Yasolde sort of situation. <laughs> and uh, again, like we, we're into some of the same games. Um, I mean, I, I play games online for two different reasons, either to relax and that's like when I played No Man's Sky. Mm. And if you've played No Man's Sky, the game is just wandering through space. And if you're in the mood to just kind of wander through space, it's a great game. Uh, when I'm in <sighs> PvP mode, though, like I, I honestly don't have many PvP games because most of my friends who play those kind of games are on uh, either a, a PC or on PlayStation at this point. Um, and, and the ir- irony is, mm. is we have a PlayStation, but I am such a Taurus that uh, because I have started purchasing most of my games on my Xbox and I am used to the Xbox controller, uh, by God, that's my hill and I will die on it. (laughs) And I don't blame you. I really don't. I can't bring myself to get an Xbox. So, you know, that's... I I understand 100%, you know? But with this cross-platforming thing that Sony and Microsoft are now doing... uh, I can be a little bit country and you can be a little bit rock and roll, but we can still play on the same stage and it'll be pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yep. That was the announcement. Uh, Sony just super casually just dropped like, oh yeah, by the way, yeah, um, yeah, we're in. So that's just fantastic because they've been the one basically uh, holding the dam as far as crossplay is concerned. And uh, that's really exciting. You know, and a lot of people have seen it happening, you know, recently you know, uh, Rocket League, Fortnite, you know, there have been a lot of games that have dabbled in this, whether they were allowed to or not, it was happening. And, uh, oh, Final Fantasy as well. Mm-hmm, Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so now it's it's coming. They've acknowledged that they don't give a shit anymore. Excuse my French. Uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty pleased. Hey, me too. Uh, like I said, it was just been it's been a long wait. I don't understand why it's taken. I mean, they wanted the exclusivity thing like for mm. so long. If you wanted anything Final Fantasy, you had to go to uh, Sony, yep. uh, and and so that's why I, I mean, when I first started playing Final Fantasy seven, eight, nine, that was my bread and butter, um, and so. I don't know, I, I felt like I lost a lot of that when I went to Xbox, and then more things started becoming available on both systems, and now yeah. we got crap cross-platforming, and yeah, it's just, it's good news, good good directions for the gaming communities, and it'll open it up so that more people can, can access it. Um, yep, absolutely. And yeah, I heard a lot of numbers, what they were hoping was that they would entice people to buy both systems. But uh, in reality, we were sitting on the couch with two different people, and it was not a 50-50 where one said, yes, I will buy two consoles. And the other one said, no, I will not. Right. And instead, it was both of them being like, I don't have that kind of money and time and desire to get both. Right. It's not worth it. I mean, hell, if, if most people could afford both, that'd be great. But like, I've got, I had to save up for my Xbox. Uh, Court got her PlayStation as a Christmas present one year. But we wouldn't have gotten that otherwise. I mean, it was, it was just too expensive. Yeah. Especially when we already had one console that seems redundant to then get a second console. So I think their oh. whole marketing plan backfired. Oh. Uh, but. Which is also interesting. 
totally 15 second side note yeah absolutely i can't bring myself to buy a ps pro right but the uh, big rumors right now ps5 is going to be launching with the standard and a pro model out of the gate that way they can offer the higher end at the price what people want to pay and have the lower one for people that are cutting but also all new stuff it's not like it's I don't know if 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 they were to be like, all right, we got an Xbox One, and it's the Xbox One Ultra, and it's just really awesome, but it's still just an Xbox One, but just with some more bells and whistles. They'd be like, (laughs) I ain't spending money on that. I've already got an Xbox One. It may not have bells or whistles, but it plays my games, and that's that's all right. Now, when the next generation of Xbox comes out, I'm going to have to get that console uh, just to keep up with the evolution. So, um, but no, like you said, it, it it kind of instead of having people buy both platforms everybody just decided on their team and now you have very heated debates online about who's better and it's like dude you realize these are just corporations right you're you're literally just debating over <laughs> over which corporation is better but honestly it's just both gaming systems you're not the enemies guys it's the corporations i know i know but anyways oh. great game so yeah, we're looking forward to that, the whole crowd. It's going to take a while, but it's in the works. So y'all look forward to it. We look forward to it. It's good. Um, but this this chapter today is on momentum and, and mm. all the factors that kind of play into that. Uh, the first one that Sun Tzu talks about is formation and communication. Excuse me. Excused. Now we've talked a lot about formation and communication in the past. When we've talked about things like regulation um, or moral compass. But in this particular case, um, I want to take it in the direction of like line position and the role that that assigns. Cause I, I don't think a lot of people, we think I overthink, if you're going to learn something about me through this show, it's that I think way too much about everything, but I mm. think, I think the product of that might be useful to people. And in this particular case, most people don't think about necessarily their responsibility when they're lining up for a fight in Bellagarth. It's just that, you know, fighters to the field, you're on your team, you happen to be standing where you're standing, and then you do what you want to do based on the, the, how you feel. Like, that's, that's mm-hmm. by and large what I see uh, yeah. from people when they're lining up. But well, if you're being a truly effective fighting force, each position in the line has a role to it has something that, that can only be done by that person, and if it isn't done by the people filling that part of the line, it's not going to be done at all and could potentially be catastrophic. The same thing in 40K. Um, you really have to be thinking about where things are in relation to other things on the board and what job that gives them. You don't want your no-melee unit to be front and center in the middle of the board unless the point was for it to get chopped to pieces by your opponent's melee unit because that's what's going to happen that's what's going to happen um it's a similar idea for for bell so the the line positions as i see them is if you imagine a line uh so you've got a zero in the center and that could be called center and then at both plus one and negative one you have a position that we've started calling the support position Mm. And then at plus one and or plus two and negative two, you have the swing position. Uh, no, this isn't a sex party thing. This is this is oh, just. Uh, are you sure? Well, it depends on the battlefield, I guess. But <laughs> for the most part, it's. Uh, I don't think it is. Especially not in these situations. 
No, yeah, and and I mean I've heard about it, but uh, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Let's just put it that way: I haven't seen it. And then the last uh, one, both uh, negative three and positive three, is the outside position. Uh, and we're going to kind of go through what we're thinking about here. We just kind of wanted to give you a, a visual idea yes. of what we're talking about. It's very nice. Yeah. So the center position, as implied, is that zero position. And this is anybody who's filling out that very center portion. And I mean the front and center. So we're talking the shieldmen, uh, heavily armored or not, who have taken it upon themselves to be the front of the line. Um, and they have some fairly specific jobs. Very. You know? uh, they have to. They have to make sure that they hold cohesion. How cool? Cohesion, unlike that sentence, <laughs> um, and and be paying attention to where each other's are. They also have to be some of the most aggressive, uh, constantly aggressive people mm. on the field because their job is to advance that line and be opening up opportunities for other people. Uh, if the center isn't strong, if they're not doing their jobs, you get huge gaps that open up uh, where people can kind of rush through or get their opportunities, arrows coming in, whatever. Um, and so I, I think the center is probably one of the most important jobs to, for just consistency's sake. Truly. Yeah, if you, don't have a, if you don't have a strong core, you know you're not going anywhere. I mean, regardless of how you use it, that's so vital to hold the line together. Oh, yeah. Even if you have pocket groups, each of those individual groups, and this is important to realize, is that this is not just on a large scale. You could, This can happen even between three people where you're missing, you know, you're, the, the switch ends up, be, or the swing ends up being the swing and the outside, you know, that... And then we'll talk about that. We'll touch upon that later as well. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so I mean, numbers, at, we're, we're, I suppose that should be clarified. When we're thinking in this number numeric sequence, we're thinking large teams on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 or more people um, that can kind of fill out these numbers. And they, when you start getting into large and large and larger numbers, um, the, this you get more people in those, you get more centers, more people who qualify as a zero, more people who qualify as a, a one or a two. And that negative minus thing is just, are they on the left or are they on the right? Because um, obviously a line goes both ways. Um, but yeah, so like we were saying, the center, um, yeah, they have to be solid. They have to be good at what they're doing and they, they cannot give ground unless it is strategically viable. It's another huge thing. Um, but you normally find yourself in the the one position, in the support position, as a red person, you know? Well, yeah, both. I do often end up there out of necessity. Gotcha. And, you know, we'll also touch on, on that form of flexibility later as well. But, yeah, I end up there a lot, definitely. Because it's important. The only thing that can break a strong opposing center is a good support. Which is why I end up there. Yep. And, and, and so the support is just as important. If the center is that rock-hard base that advances forward and is pressing the advantage of the army, the support is what is enabling them to keep up that speed, to keep mm-hmm. up the momentum by clearing away what's in their way. Opposing shields cut them down. Opposing pole arms, cut them down. That's the job of the support section. Again, support makes it sound 
less heroic. It makes it sound less adventurous than it actually is because being support is actually a lot of fun. Some of the people I see smiling the most are your spears or your glaives out there just hacking people down. It's the way to be... And in terms of uh, Warhammer 40k, a support would be any any unit that isn't necessarily dealing the most damage, but is helping. In this particular uh, case, it would be maybe like a Space Marine Captain, yes. or anybody else with a bubble effect that increases the likelihood of hitting, or increases the damage, or attacks, or whatever, of the people around them. They're just as necessary for that line as the line itself. You know? Some good support. A massive group of boys doesn't do much good unless you got somebody with the breaking heads ability nearby. Guardsmen are only as good as their commissar, you know. Like, <laughs> I, wouldn't you say psychers in a way are almost always support as well as whatever else they are? Oh yeah, oh yeah, because their their whole job is to kind of shift the battlefield to accommodate whatever the center is trying to do. Um, because while the, the the battlefield may be focused on the center, the game isn't necessarily won there but it can definitely be lost um, in the center. Big time. So the support play a huge part in making sure that your center is doing their job and advancing and destroying the opposing center. But on the outside of that, so the, the support isn't necessarily to the side of them. That can be behind or to the, to the side of them, but the, mostly they're, they're, it's to show that they're not in that up in front central position. But somebody who is physically down further in the line would be either your swing or your switch fighter. And this position is highly versatile because it requires you to know where you're required at any given time. The obvious point of a swing or switch fighter is to protect the end of your line. It's to keep the opponent from wrapping around and and crippling or turning your line back. Uh, but it can also be, if you see an opportunity to jump into your opponent's line and do a nice little sw- uh, slash across, you have to be able to do that. If you see flankers coming around out wide, you need to be able to holler out and potentially deal with them. So the, the switcher swing, uh, they don't necessarily get a whole lot of kills, but they need to be very aware of what's going on around them because their job is changing based on the changing battlefield circumstances. This is actually my personal favorite position to run to i I do love switch (laughs) yeah i love running red glaive high mobility sprinting chasing down flankers you know crippling curling sides it's it's so fun and even though you don't get the most kills the the some of the hingiest and clutchiest of plays happen in these positions and not not every game is going to be a hero moment but the hero moments that occur in that number two switch position are pretty damn epic. Crazy, I, yeah. I, I rather enjoy them. Um, and so I, I, for, for 40K, this would be in, in terms of anything that you're keeping there. For, for me, it's my Castellan robots. I can, I can speak about this from the point of view of the ad mech. Um, not my shooty bots, which is to say the Castellans equipped with all the phosphor blasters, but when I build them as my punchy bots, which uh, that's the incending carbine and the Castellan fists. And the reason I'm saying this is because with those carbines, they have an auto hit in a flamer. And it's a decently strong flamer, and it's got a long range, so that it works very well defensively. The fists are devastating. They can they they can tear just about anything apart. Uh, they can be whittled down. They're not a strength eight or a toughness eight. Um, and so after, especially if you switch them from their Aegis protocol to another protocol, they're a lot. Um, weaker and are but their point is being this switch 
I usually set them out kind of on the edge or, 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 or near the edge of my formation. And if my enemy presses really hard, the point of these robots is to kind of fall back and make sure that the enemy cannot maneuver without them being an obstacle. Mm-hmm. If my enemy isn't pressing me, the job of these robots is to go forth and press my enemy. And so they're always looking for that aggression, but they don't necessarily have a plan before the enemy makes a move, if that makes sense. Hybrid. Yes, absolutely. So that would be like the switch position. It's something that can do one or the other. Um, it's you, it's some it's a it's a unit that you have on the field for its flexibility, for its ability to support a hole where it might see one. Just like on the Belagarth field, the switch is there to reinforce what needs to be reinforced. You need another flanker, the switch has got it. You need somebody to help hold the line, the switch can slide over. Um, it's it's a versatile position. Can be high stress, but it's a lot of fun too. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely hinges heavily on the concepts in this chapter of uh, seizing momentum as a window. Oh, yeah. It's just 100% vital. And the thing about the switch is you can be any we- uh, weapon specialist and, yep. and be one. It's not like a center, which you really benefit from being a shieldman if you're going to be a center. Yeah. Um, and you really benefit from having a polearm of some sort if you're going to support that center or be an archer. Archer right. would also fall into that support role. But if you're going to be a switch, you can do any of that. You can be a shieldman. You can be Florentine. You can be single sword. You can even be... I've seen archers, like your combat archers that like to get nice and close, kind of do a switch role. Um, so it's really oh, a really yeah. versatile thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, some fighters like uh, Catabus... Uh, for sure. He is often starts in the switch position mm-hmm. and breaks into the next role that we're going to talk about. Which is the outside position. And this is your number three, and these are your flankers and your counter flankers. Now, the rule about being fast and likely being unarmored does not apply to the previously mentioned fighter that Oni was just talking about, this fella Catabus is something else. If you've seen him out there sprinting around in his full armor, he's got a backpack shield and two swords, and he's just running around shooting, shooting, shooting with his bow. And when you get close enough, he draws his stuff and just comes on you, and he does it all day. In the heat, in the cold. day. (laughs) Oh, my. That is not an understatement. He runs high energy all the time. And so when you hear me say now that for the most part, outsides are unarmored, like any good rule, there are exceptions. But the point of an outside is to be quick. Your job is to get either across the field and upset your opponent's line by engaging them in a way that they did not predict or to intercept your opponent who is attempting to do the same thing. Love, love a good outside. And again, you can use just about any weapon combination for this. The best ones I've found are usually Florentine, because uh, unlike in the line, where you're you're better, like as a Florentiner, you're kind of archer bait, uh, because typically you don't have a shield, as the name implies. Um, and so you're you're looking around and you're constantly worried about archers or spearmen. In the outside position, you don't have to worry about that, at least not in the immediate sense. So it's a lot easier, in my opinion, to be a Florentiner on the outside than just about anywhere else in the line. I have literally never thought about that absolutely at all. At all. You're I mean, not a, a Florentiner. I wouldn't necessarily expect you to be thinking about that. But I, I definitely, you know, hinge huge importance on knowing proper roles for my teammates and my enemies. So that's... 
a well, very astute observation. I suppose, again, the, the best thing to remember as a Florentine or as somebody who's thinking about Florentiners is that you have sacrificed just about all effective medium and long-range defense uh, by choosing the style that you have. Now, I love Florentine. It's my favorite style to roll with. But in, in choosing it, spears are a big issue. Archers are a bigger issue. Javelins, uh, things that most people, like even, even with a red or with a, a larger polearm, you still have that good medium range defense. You know, you can keep people away from you. You can engage spearmen at their effective range and not have to get at them too close. You're a, a Florentiner trying to get close enough to hit a spearman. That's half the battle. Yeah. 70% of the battle. <laughs> oh, and I did actually happen to know this very well. Being a, a spearman glaive main, it's, it's sometimes disgustingly easy to deal with some very skilled Florentiners just as a hard counter. So, naturally, the Florentiners will gravitate out to the outside positions, flanking, counter-flanking, but that doesn't mean it's exclusive. Uh, my apprentice, TF, often finds himself on the outside, and he is a, a, a sword and border, for the most part. He's quick enough to make it work. Um, my other apprentice, uh, Kaji, on the other hand, I often see him in the center or in swing. That doesn't mean he can't play outside, Um but uh, he uses a larger shield for the most part, so he, he heads up that strong center. So gear um, can absolutely play a part in where you're going to be most effective. So if you're taking to the field for the first time and your foot speed isn't going to be the greatest and you know that ahead of time, maybe find yourself toward the center because you know that the, the movement isn't going to be as dynamic there. Uh, but if you just came to us from a high school track team and you got some stink to burn off you, we could use you in the outside with the other uh, fleet-footed guys all run, or, and gals all running around uh, yeah. you know, playing dogfight out there. Uh, yeah. Dogfight World War I, flying aces, not uh, football uh, pastime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, none of that nonsense. So line position and roll. That's important, and again, I don't. I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about, and that it's something, and and kind of like we were saying, as a Florentiner, you want to get into that action, but mm. uh, waiting for that perfect time, that's important. And so, line position, role, um, a huge part of formation and communication. Already knowing this, and this kind of comes into the idea of having a plan, having rehearsed the ten thousand situations you might find yourself. Mm. If your if your realm is offering a weekly practice attend that weekly practice attend, attend. <laughs> if your realm is offering a three times a week practice as much as you can as much as you are physically and uh, obviously if your job overlaps real world comes first but if you've got the time and you've got the ability you've got to try to make as many practices as possible because any person can pull out something that's going to surprise you that being said there's a lot of patterns to fighting there's a lot of sequences that play out the same every single time. If you've got it, for instance, if you've got a strong center supported by a strong support, things are going to go well. If you've seen this go well in practice, it makes it easier for you to act upon it in the future. Makes and sense. Yeah, absolutely. Faster, cleaner. You know what's going to happen too it's, when you do it. Hopefully. And so coming in with a plan doesn't mean that you've sat there and had a huddle and mapped out exactly how the battle's going to go. Because as Rommel said, no plan survives uh, con first contact with the enemy. 
Um, that being said, if you've got a plan for every circumstance that might occur in your head as an individual, and you know that you're, you're uh, good at doing a swing position or the switch position, and you know what those, the, the different uh, situations you might find yourself in, you're going to be able to act on those a lot faster than if it's the first time you're coming into it and you're trying to figure out what to do. It's one of the benefits we get uh, not dying uh, when we're defeated is that we can learn how to do it better next time and learn what patterns work or don't work. Yeah, straight up. We're living in a Valhalla type situation in that regard. And it has made some incredible fighters. I mean, yes, you can, you can train, you know, back in the day, people trained in such a manner where they would have big group fights, you know, but they're using wooden weapons. People got hurt bad in these training situations and gained some really tense, yeah, exactly, negative feelings towards some of their comrades that can really mess things up, where in this situation, we're all having a good time, we're all playing. People do still get hurt, but not like they do in old world training situations. So we, we get the chance to rehearse as it were, these mm. different battlefield situations. What what does happen if suddenly your center starts to cave? What are you supposed to do there? Well, you get the chance to find out when that actually happens. Now, that doesn't mean that... Because I've tried. I've tried throughout my career to stage um, different things happening, different battlefield instances happening, but not in an organic way, in a, in a training purpose. And it's almost impossible to stage mm. effectively because nothing beats actual combat. Nothing beats what actual people do when they're moving around in a serious manner. A, a training scenario only accomplishes so much. Actual combat is the best way to learn. A hundred percent. And so that's the rehearsal we're talking about. It's not rehearsing, you know, this exact situation. It's trying to find that situation in the battlefield combat and rehearsing it over and over again. Are you not very good at rushing up on reds? You need to find yourself in that position more and rush them more often so that you become more acquainted with how they swing, where their weaknesses are, where the time in their strike is to sprint at them, and what speed to do when you do that. All those things have to be practiced, have to be rehearsed, and unfortunately, a lot of that can't be taught. It just has to be felt. Oh, truly, it's absolutely something you have to learn by hand and experience. And this idea of of having to just do it, to have to learn something, is really common across what we're going to be reading. And it's But it's very uh, poignant for this next section, which is on oblique and direct approach. So for the purpose of oblique, um, I'm translating that to layman speak as flanking. So direct approach is anything that's coming on at a straight angle, and then oblique is anything that's engaging from a deviant angle. So anything that's coming from the side or from the back would be considered an oblique in this. And Sun Tzu tells us that there are only two different types of motion, only two different ways to attack in battle, and that is by the oblique or by the direct approach. But the combination of these ideas is infinite, kind of like... The, the Chinese, when he's reading this, he said there's only five notes, but their combination is infinite. Um, they have a pentatonic scale. Uh, we have an, uh, uh, eight notes in our Gregorian scale, and so for us, there's only eight notes. But every song you've ever heard produced in the West only had eight notes in it, plus their, their sharps and their flats. They, I mean, in a sense, he's talking about binary. Yep. You know, ones and zeros making it all happen. So, but, but all those combinations, 
uh, from just from just those things, or or in the face of of t- flavor. You know, you've got sweet, you've got salty, and you've got bitter. Um, uh, for for the Chinese, they have five other flavors that they talk about, but those are the ones we talk about mm. for our palate. And but there's no limit to the different types of flavor things that you can taste. Oh, spice. I think spice is in there somewhere too. I haven't ah. studied the tongue in too long. <laughs> Knowledge you don't realize you don't have. <coughs> oh, bless you, sir. Me. <laughs> bless you. That was terrible. So anyway, his, his point here is that one always will become the other and that there's an infinite combination. There's, there's infinite combinations of this idea of the oblique and of the direct approach. But the, the thing is, you may start off doing one and have that transition into another. Which is really shows that the infinite combo isn't about the ones and zeros or the, the two different types, but how they flow together. Right, right. And, and, and that's exactly it. And you have to know both in order. This isn't like the position thing where I know some people who are uh, pretty solid in their career as a, as a center. Uh, that's that's what they do. They have their big shield, they have their big flail or their big club, and they've got their armor, and they're a center. That's what they do. Or some people who are outside, they cannot stand fighting in a line. You couldn't make them if you tried, and they are dedicated to that outside position. But both of them, both people need to be proficient in oblique and direct approach. Because if you, let's say you're in the center, and uh, you are lining up against the other team, but the line begins to break right in front of you and you get an opportunity to cut into the opposing line at an oblique fashion. Make it like you've kind of got a mini flanking opportunity here. You need to be able to take advantage of that. Something I like to lovingly call peeling the line. Yeah. Because it kind of makes this curve where the center pockets over their wall and your whole wall, if you do it right, just kind of crumbles over them. Another good uh, way to visualize it is rolling the line because mm. you're rolling up that line. Yep. I like to. It also just screaming "roll the line." Just it just sounds fun to to scream. You <laughs> when know, you're in the line. Probably a safer bet than peel the line. I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my vernacular is just terrible. That's that's very hanged men. What is the the? Oh, bless me, Rem, Rennie, Remy. The guy from Game of Thrones. Um, Mm. Oh, God. House. I cannot believe this is escaping me right now. The Hanged Men. Well, I'm not caught up, so, you know. Never mind. Never mind. No spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. No. (laughs) Um, If only I was spoiler sensitive, I'd be more concerned. (laughs) But but in the same idea, um, uh, as, as... For instance, uh, transitioning from a direct approach to an oblique, the same can be said for the other way around. If you're coming in and your purpose, your intent is to flank your opponent, um, and you succeed in doing so, and then a portion of your opponent's team realizes what you're doing, turns to face you, you've now just found yourself in a direct approach. So if all you know how to do is flank, if you are a career backstabber, um, you're not going to be able to engage in that direct approach when it turns around and faces you. And so any fighter, center, support, switch, outside, whatever you want to, wherever you are on the line, you need to be proficient in both of these things. Knowing how to stand your ground and present opportunities, and also knowing how to take opportunities when they are presented. Um, 
And that's actually the, the next portion we're going to go into. Do you have anything else you want to talk about in uh, 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 oblique and direct approach, Oni? Nailed it. You want to talk about some momentum and timing? Because I think this I'm is, ready. we're right there. Um, so this, this idea that we're talking about, what is momentum? And I don't mean what is the, the physics concept of momentum. I mean what is momentum in terms of battlefield force? And what is timing? Because the hawk kills its prey with momentum and timing. The string of the crossbow is the momentum. The trigger is the timing. But how do you generate that tension? How do you generate that killing strike? And how do you know when to apply it? Well, pressure... Pressure creates opportunities all across the line. Any of us have seen this. Anytime that your team is on just that killing rage, it's because people are moving into the, the opposing kill zone, really. Mm. You're creating that pressure. You're making your opponent have to consider you in their next plan. If you're standing off by 15 feet, somebody doesn't necessarily have to think about you, unless you're an archer. You, you're, the rule doesn't <laughs> apply to you there. But for most people, they're thinking about what's directly around them. So the best way for you to create pressure is just to move into somebody's kill zone. You don't necessarily have to be throwing shots. Normally, if I'm a shieldman on the line, I'm not necessarily throwing many shots at all. My job is to block my, for myself and the people to my left and to my right. Uh, killing people is secondary. Absolutely. And just in contrary to that, the same style that I like to use, psychological pressure. Yeah. You make a mess, you start causing trouble over in an area, and pretty soon focus is on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this this pressure, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the center. You can create pressure on the outside as well. But the idea is that you're constantly putting this pressure on, not just for yourself, but to open up those shots for your teammates, to create those opportunities that allow your teammates to get those killing blows. And in regards to timing... Practice makes perfect timing. And this is, timing is about a lot of different things. Timing involves elements of foot speed and hand speed and technique. Well, how do you work on foot speed? That's a a question I actually get a lot of the time because I tell people you need to work on your footwork, you need to work on your foot speed, and people say, well, how do I do that? Um, And there's there's a number of different ways to do so, but I, I guess I can kind of talk about what I've done and you can talk about what you've done. So one of the ways that I worked on my footwork, and don't, don't laugh, um, is through <laughs> dance classes. Um, <laughs> yes, throaty chortle. Um, but uh, I, the idea occurred to me because I had heard that football players uh, will occasionally take ballet classes or, or other dance classes in order to help with their uh, leg strength and their coordination. And so I was, I had a few... Um, extra classes to be taken in my college mm-hmm. schedule. So I decided to enroll in a dancing class. I then proceeded to have a dancing class in every single semester that I went to school. Um, it was for twofold reasons. One, dancing was just a lot of fun. It was a really active and energetic way to get out some of that aggression or tension that you're feeling from school um, in, a, in a way that gets you a grade. So in that way, I really enjoyed dance and just the dance class itself. But on the other side of that, dance gives you amazing timing. It gives you amazing coordination and really good speed and balance because everything in dancing is choreographed, but it's meant to be done as transitions. Every move has something else that's coming along with it. So every time you're moving your leg, you're moving your arm. Or every time you're moving uh, your lower body, you're moving your upper body. And so it gets you into this headspace of using your feet not just as a step shoot, but like a step and shoot simultaneously. 
Um, so for me, it was really good on getting like the timing, not just the rhythm of being able to move with my own feet and have them be where I want them to be. Hadn't even thought about that. That really almost, uh, like, like martial arts teaches you body mechanic. I had so naively not considered, Hmm. I, but I, I didn't really have that from anything else. Like, like I, I understand that you did martial arts pretty extensively, probably before you came to Bell. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I came to it, and my feet didn't do didn't do what I wanted them to do. So I had to figure something out because it wasn't something that people were teaching all that well. But, but for you, uh, I imagine that you got your footwork and your foot speed from martial arts. Well, that and among other things, I'm kind of, I'm kind of jealous of that. Well, not jealous isn't the right word. That's smart. That's very smart to do, to look in other areas for such things. I, uh, yeah, I come from a, mine's a kind of a one or, you know, one hand or the other situation. I come from a family of pro athletes. Oh, word. And uh, so it's genetic, yes, but I've also had many, many, many instances of clumsiness in my life. (laughs) And... (laughs) have definitely have some balance issues when I was younger and I did a ton of sports and martial arts martial arts constantly but I was always trying to be thrown in a in a team sport here or there sure so I'm not sure if that's what developed it for me or just the martial arts practice but um man well, I think that, it would come from both no doubt probably that both would contribute definitely um, because I know that I, I had a student one year. Um, did you ever meet Hope? You knew Hope, didn't you? Mm, the name sounds familiar. I'd have or, to see Not if... Hope. Uh, Faith. No. <sighs> God. No, it's Hope. It was Hope on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her name was Hope. Um, I can't remember what her fighting name was, but she she was a basketball player and a swimmer. And mm. if you watched her fight, you could see it because she moved like a basketball player. Like all of her footwork was was the drills that she had learned from doing that. But it transferred over well. Like really, like a lot of guys, I, I, I know a, one of my friends, Hakan, uh, taught a class at a Battle for the Ring one year on, on using boxing um, footwork for um, uh, for Bellagarth. Or no, it, maybe it was somebody else. I can't remember who it was, but somebody was teaching. It was a really good class. I went there to, because my wife wanted to take it mm. and she didn't want to go alone. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and, and take this class. I mean... Uh, I, there's not many things somebody can teach me about footwork. And then I get there and this guy's talking about how to transfer boxing mechanics into fighter mechanics. And I was like, show me that again. <laughs> you know, I was, I was right. I was his best pupil after that because you can learn it from anywhere. Anything that teaches you coordination, anything that teaches you how to be on your feet, you can pull that and use it for Bellegarth. Body mechanics or body mechanics. Sure. Yeah. You can, you can learn them through any kind of means. Oh man, maybe I'm just in the mindset that I'm I'm a little I'm thinking a little deeper on some of these concepts, even out of the box like you're saying dancing, you know, that's the martial arts has the trifecta. They have sport, combat, and oh my gosh, we're going to have to stop and edit this cuz I am just too no, deep good. to remember it's the good. third. No, it, it, and and, and <laughs> You know, one of the other things that people negate is uh, even just solid cardio endurance training. <gasps> Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I could be there to get you. Exercise. Exercise Those are the three. Yep. 
combat martial arts, sport martial arts, and exercise martial arts. And that can go to sport side as well, or like you said, even different things like dancing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, one of the things we used to do for the Great Hunt, for instance, uh, an organization within uh, Bellagarth, is we would hike to the top of one of the mountains here. And when you got to the top, there was this nice little uh, plateau before a rather steep hill. And so the idea was that you walk to the base of that hill, but that you sprint the last hundred yards or so to the very, very top of the mountain. And when you get up there, your legs are shaky because you've not just walked up an entire mountain, but you've sprinted up the last of it. Um... And you have to fight immediately when you get to the top because whoever beat mm-hmm. you up there is there waiting to fight you. And it is a great drill. It is a great way to learn how to fight when you are fatigued because that's honestly a place where a lot of people lose out. Their foot speed, and any little footwork that they do goes out the window the second that they get fatigued. Their legs just become these solid weights at the bottom of their body and you've, you've defeated yourself. You've, St- stage four. Yeah. Stage one is like when you're warming up, you know, like knocking the rust off. Stage two is you're getting heated, you know, like you're starting to make those really good snap decisions. Stage three is when you are in afterburner. You are hitting it super hard. You're like snapping as fast as you're hitting it as many times as you can. You're trying to follow all those windows and it leads to stage four eventually, however long, depending these windows are. And stage four is complete exhaustion. Your body goes into com- total secondary mode. You're on autopilot. Your decisions are made completely in your lizard brain. And this is where practice comes in. A hundred percent. Whatever you've practiced, whatever you've drilled in this condition, that's what you're going to be able to do. So if you, in practice... Every time you start to get to this stage four feeling, tap out because you're tired, you're never going to learn how to fight in that state. Mm-hmm. You're never going to become super Sam if you never push yourself. Tragic. Um, and so that's that's not just important for foot speed, but important for the whole thing. But it's the idea that practice in any regard can help in this way. Uh, the next thing that we talked about, though, was hand speed. Um, and this is also just things like general uh, hand-eye coordination. I know my reflexes are probably my biggest saving grace. And the reason that my reflexes have stayed so good is likely video games. It's huge. I mean... I mean, that and just constant Bellagarth practice. I mean, <laughs> uh, if a bird flies by at the right angle and I catch the shadow on the ground, I will duck because I think it's an arrow. My body will just make me duck. And I've, I've ducked in a crowded like lot before and had people like... They're just looking at you as as if something's wrong with you. And you're like, sorry, I thought it was javelin. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, Too many rocks. Yeah. It's it's so real, though. It's something trained. It's something practiced, learning that offhand skill. And I think, you know, just as I had not considered some of the different footwork options, I'd say, uh, on the other hand, uh, things like art and writing, you know, constant hand use, delicate Tai Chi style, you know, practice slow, execute fast. Music, any, like, mm. like keyboards or, uh, or trumpet or cello or drumming or anything that involves that coordination, anything that involves um, doing all those things at, at, at one time. Because like if you're playing a guitar or a violin, for instance, you got to be thinking about what's going on in the left hand at the same time as you're thinking about what's going on in the right hand. They're doing totally separate things at the same time contributing towards something. That's not unlike 
uh, a sword and border trying to use their shield and their sword effectively at the same time. Uh, a true hurdle for a lot of fighters. For sure. Not react, act. It's all one motion. Um, and so they, and really anything. Anything that increases your coordination. Like you said, art. That was something I wouldn't have thought of because I'm, I'm not necessarily an <laughs> artist. Um, I can draw a mean stick figure mean cocapelli but that's about it hey well um, you're an artist on the dance floor i suppose so in my long gangly way um <laughs> i'm into it but like i said uh, uh, the, the fighting games um like any sort of video game where you're working on hand-eye coordination uh trying to like send these impulses process things very quickly uh these things translate into real world uh reflexes or at least they can if you've got something else going on as mm. well um i'm not a neurologist but that's a fact um, <laughs> Truly. What uh, anything else you can think of that helps increase hand speed? Obviously, pell work or or anything directly made to do so. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, absolutely. And the same thing. Uh, I mean, man, gosh, just use. Really, just use and practice is the biggest thing. You know, yeah. even in martial arts, like focusing on your hands, focusing on like proper hand technique helps. You know, but. You have to practice snaps, just like sprint drills. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about turning those actions into quick movements, quick, thoughtless reaction. And even taking like a boxing class, like we were saying with the footwork, uh, a boxing class would be great for hand speed in a sword game too. Mm-hmm. You're using a lot of the similar body mechanics. And so if you can figure out where that timing is in your body with just your fists, you put a sword in your hand and you're already one step closer than somebody who doesn't have that to begin with. So your martial arts training would absolutely qualify for that. Sorry, my cat is going, uh, he's playing NASCAR. It's his time and I'd play NASCAR. He's rampaging for sure. I'm into it, but yeah, definitely the martial arts helped a lot. And for me, when I started, it was all about applying myself to the framework of bell. Yep. I I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't think necessarily that everything in my life would relate to Bell, and here we are at, uh, I'm at the age of 32, and I'm doing a podcast about Bellagarth, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. here we are. <laughs> I love this community. Um, so the, the last thing that we're talking about in, in terms of things that you can actually practice that will help you make perfect timing uh, is technique itself. Um, and obviously the best way to pick up technique is to spar and learn from people one-on-one. That's honestly the best way to do Mm -hmm. it because nothing beats a living opponent that's going to hit you back. Um, I agree. But uh, assuming that you're doing plenty of that, things you can do on uh, in addition to that to help you with your technique um, are really, it's kind of the same thing. There's some some stuff that's rather structured that's made for it. For instance, I do a lot of forms. Um, I know two or three uh, sword forms that I run through with a, an unweighted and a weighted blade. Um, and what this does is just teach my body that muscle memory. It teaches me, like, if I see an opening, I know to throw a three strike, which is a horizontal coming from same side. Um, my body just knows that. I've run these, these forms for the last 10 years just about every single day. Um, so even as rusty as I am right now, you put a blue sword in my hand and I could still swing it. Um, just because I, I you keep those neural tracks those impressions active uh through forms uh shadow boxing is something else i like to do fighting invisible football opponents that aren't there and just thinking about like really thinking what would i do cassius good lord um (laughs) 
just thinking about what would I do if my opponent threw this shot? How would I block it? How would I block a shot from this angle? How would I block it? Like, and just running yourself through these imaginary scenarios can help you figure it out before you get to the real thing. Or if it was something you were struggling with before. Okay, dude, this isn't going to work. Yes, I know. <laughs> Go. Oh, Dad. Dude. But you're busy. I need to bother you. Get on now. Oh. I'll be your huckleberry. <laughs> you know, I perfected that shot. It was one of the first things I learned. When I started doing nerf, was the behind the back shot with it because I, I haven't ever done an, a LARP that I could use it at. They keep we keep talking about doing this Fallout LARP here locally. Um, I keep having cold feet about getting involved, but I have started to perfect that shot. So if I'm negotiating with somebody and it starts to go south, but blam, they never to see me pull my gun. Bust up a huckleberry. Deception. <laughs> mm, truly, yes. So yeah, so for, for technique, like I said, there's uh, I, I do katas, which are moving forms. So it's yep. the same thing as like 12 shots, but just doing them in a moving fashion. Uh, shadow boxing, um, any sort of strike combinations on uh, a pell or a boxing bag. Um, and then just uh, going against another opponent. But then, like you talked about in one of the last episodes, this idea of kung fu. Uh, it's an excellence mm. that spreads to everything. So if you're a spear user and you get told to sweep up at work, if you're not practicing your spear forms while sweeping, you're wasting it. Yep. If you're not washing windows and thinking about how that motion relates to blocking a sword, you're not using that right. Um, any action, any motion, any repetitive activity can be practice for fighting. Absolutely. Yeah. To, to uh, fix a misquote, that I had in, I believe, the last episode, um, Kung Fu is, you know, I quoted it as excellence, but the rough to that is excellence in all things. The the exact, but maybe, or not maybe exact, but the literal translation is something like master of merits or uh, excellence and merits. Um, it escapes me at the moment, but that's that's the whole thing is that you are good in many things. You're good in many ways. And those ways are all tied. And that's the whole point that is you can learn excellence through every action. It's true. And, and use any action to practice that excellence. <laughs> Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Yeah, truly. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I actually love about Bell so much is with all my martial arts experience, which, you know, spans a couple different forms and many years of nonsense. Uh, I really had a hard time shadow boxing and cutting. Like, I'm very imaginative, but it didn't help me learn the broad application of an attack. Hmm. And and it didn't, you know, we're, as we're talking about experiencing, you know, as, as you tried over and over again to set up these battles... Right, I had a hard time setting up these katas to active fighting because you don't get the group fight, you don't get the no mind fight, you get the one v one. It's true. That's what you learn from modern day martial arts is you learn these one v one situations, and it doesn't. It focuses your mind. It hyper focuses your mind into the situation, and I feel like it takes a while for the kata connection to click. You're like, yeah, I'm practicing these moves. Yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning muscle memory. I get it. I get it. I get it. But 
the 12, like learning 12 strikes and learn it because you immediately apply it. Mm-hmm. You immediately look for how is this applied? Because you're not learning a martial arts in your mind. You're learning fighting. And it's just, it's just a different form, a different application. It's, it's crazy how quick it works too. I mean, every, about every year that we teach it at the gladiators, the first several weeks, you've got kids who are rolling their eyes because we're making them do forms. And it's always the same 12 shots, and it's really oh, boring. Man. And then the first time that they throw a shot through muscle memory, that was one of the 12 shots, and it just happens because their body knows how to do it because they've been practicing it, suddenly you've got, what, are we going to practice the 12 shots? They're reminding me to, <laughs> to do it at the beginning. There was, a, there was one student, I think, last year, and she was, oh, man, she was on the ball. There were a few days where I was like, you know, I'm not going to call it today. And she was like, are we going to practice the 12 shots? And I was like, you know what? Adamant. Darn straight we are. We will. You, you know, if you're into it, I'm into it because I know the, the benefit of this. I know it's not, it's not the most exciting way to learn. It's not the most flashy or, or uh, I don't know, montage-worthy method mm-hmm. of learning, but it really does work. Um, it really does get this stuff ingrained in your head, and especially in a, in a game like ours where headshots are not legal, um, I teach t- the 12 shots that don't include headshots. So this reminds your body of the zones that you're allowed to throw in um, so that you don't, you're less inclined to do something like that on accident. Because all of this is supposed to make the turmoil of battle less chaotic. It's supposed to make it so that when you're in the pure chaos of, of a fight, you're not having to think about it at that time. The practice should have been done beforehand so that you're, you're fighting easy. Practice hard, fight easy. That's, that's a good motto to live by. Um, but Sun Tzu says there's, there's three different things to consider when you're in the tor- turmoil of battle, and each of them has uh, a, a duality of states that it can exist in. And these things to consider are deployment, momentum, and formation. So deployment, we talked about a little bit last time, and we're actually going to spend our time on a whole episode around um, war game deployment at some point. Uh, But for the purpose of this episode, when he's talking about deployment, he's speaking about the state of confusion versus organization. And and this doesn't mean um, that everybody has to be on the same team or be wearing the same colors. Like we've said before, units benefit from having similar-looking uh, clothing, garb sometimes, because it helps them pick each other out in a large crush. A lot of times you're not going to have that benefit anyways, because you're on large mixed teams at an event with a bunch of strangers. So this organization cannot be something that you're relying on from the past. If, For instance, if I'm used to fighting with my dark angels, brothers and sisters, uh, and I take to the regular field, I should not expect everyone else on that field to move like a dark angel, because they're not. They haven't been trained in that way. Uh, it's just not the way they move. For instance, uh, in the same way, somebody who's from the Urukai should not expect everybody to know how the Urukai do things. Shinigami, God Squad, Gelf, yada, yada, yada. Um, so what is organization in this particular case? Organization is Oni and I turning to each other before the battle and saying, hey, you want to team up? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. I'll be your, I'll be your center. You be my support. Um, we're going to roll up here together. Those, those little communications, those little interpersonal plans that are taking, uh, like uh, uh, deciding who's going to watch the archers, who's going to try to go around the sides, just these little organizational things make it so that the chaos of battle isn't quite extreme. Um, let's say I'm in the center and, and we are really getting it. We are, we are getting hammered hard. 
I might be thinking the situation's hopeless. I might be thinking, gosh, I, I should probably run and get out of this situation and regroup somewhere. Unbeknownst to me, a teammate of mine might be going around the side and using the, the chaos that we've created in the center to come around and hit a bunch of backs. If that hasn't been communicated to me, I might pull out of my position before they've completed the, the full arc of what they were doing. So them just communicating quickly to somebody in the center, hey, I'm going to go around the side. Suddenly I know, oh, it may be tough right now, but I'm going to wait for so-and-so to get here because they were going around the side. Mm. Those little communications can keep the battlefield shaped in the ways that you want to because the opposite of organization is confusion. If you don't know what's going on, if the, the deployment is uncertain, what you have is just confusion in the ranks. Now, it's, it's a good idea to make your enemy think you have confusion, but not to actually have it. Truly, yeah. And that's it's what's it's why it's important to know what other groups do, what other styles, what other positions, you know, mm-hmm. center, support, swing, outside. You gotta know what they're gonna do. That way when they shout out, yo, I'm going for a left flank, I'm going for a deep flank, you know what they're gonna do and you know how to act accordingly to take advantage of it and to support them in their action. To keep everything organized. And to keep the deployment anything but confused. Mm. And this is the nature of deployment. The next thing he talks about is momentum. And he says that courage and cowardice have to do with this idea of momentum. And so the way that we've chosen to interpret it, or at least that I've chosen to interpret it, um, is that courage is that motion towards the enemy. Moving into your opponent's threat zone, moving into an area where they have to pay attention to you, that's courage, that's positive momentum or movement towards the enemy. Cowardice isn't feeling afraid, it's movement away from the enemy or in a negative fashion. And so in this particular instance, courage, moving towards the enemy, cowardice, moving away from the enemy, letting them control the flow of battle. And it's really important to almost always be courageous. If you are falling back, there's, there's reasons to do so. But you have to have a plan. There has to be a reason for falling back. Otherwise, it just turns into a rout, and it's just cowardice. Um, courage is moving into the position that you need to be to make those openings. Absolutely. So for me, if I'm up on the, in the line as a shieldman, and I've got Oni standing with me with his, uh, his big glaive, courage means for me moving into my opponent's threat zone looking big and scary and making them move their shield or their bodies in such a way that Oni has opportunities and openings to kill them. That would be courage. Me swinging isn't actually important in this particular case. You can be possessing this idea of courage without ever taking a swing. The idea is that pressure that we discussed earlier, that pressure that that creates opportunities that can only be done with courage. That's where you need that momentum, that choice of action, and that down the line on the support if you don't have that then your courage is wasted Mm -hmm. you know if i don't have the courage instead of the cowardice to be backpedaling running like a foo uh you need that courage to be you need that forward push to be pushing open those windows that's how you hit openings that's how you hit windows that's how you hit weakness and if the, if the center does not have the courage to do their job, then an outside player is going to get caught out in the open and die needlessly. If an outside mm. player does not have the courage to do what needs to be done, a center player 
might do the same. So there's, there, it's not just you. This courage does not benefit just you. It benefits your whole team. If everybody's moving forward, if they have this momentum, it adds a calculable force to the battle. Anything more to say on this, on this concept of, of momentum? I just, it ties in well with a lot of things, and you wouldn't think about it from face detail, but we're talking about a moral compass and stuff like that mm-hmm. really helps a group momentum, a group role, because it adds to that native organization in the mind, the group's mind. Because you want to protect the person beside you. Mm. You know, if you've got a good moral compass, if you've got a good moral organization, if everybody's getting along, likes the leader, agrees with the overall plan, um, then I'm going to be far more likely to have your back than if I'm just out there being like, oh, let's just get this over with. You know, that's going to be a sloppy fight. Oh, 100%. Yeah, actually, one of the greatest learning experiences for me in style fighting in like position fighting uh was in a very specific kill the king battle um kill the king is a love it or hate it type situation some people love it when they're king some people hate it when they're king (laughs) exactly and i think at first it's easy to love it and be like yay i want to be king And those are those matches where you get murdered. Like, you absolutely get destroyed and your team loses very often. And the mid-game ones, like, in this is when you hate it. You're like, no, I've run into that problem so many times. I don't want to be king. I don't want to be king. And and that's on many levels because you try and it ends terribly. And then... And I got frustrated with that. I got frustrated with that stage. I really didn't like it. I didn't like that I had such a hard time leading a group in this game type. And I think a big part of that is exactly what you said you just touched upon. When I had been thinking about this very heavily, there was maybe a year, year and a half back, um, there was a really nice summer Stygia battle where we were running some pretty big group Kill the Kings. Okay. And you were there for sure. Uh, I, I had we, I had experienced some positive uh, changes in my Kill the King based on my attitude, just in when I ran King Rounds. And in the weeks prior, I had, I had experienced slight success. Okay. A, f- a few positive rounds where it went exactly as I su- expected. And then the, the opposite team would flip it and we'd get crushed. Sure. Or lose closely. But either way, I had, I'd started to see a good window on me running a DPS king. Okay. That's, that's what I'm interested in. The best kings seem to be tanky, you know, because, or hybrid tanks. Your Alexanders who are up there on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And they can handle the, the, the wave either forward or back. They can push hard or they can pull and still play defensive. So it's kind of tough for an eight-foot glaive to to do that. But we got into this Kill the King. I'm, I'm beyond the point. I got into this Kill the King, and it was all... I don't know what happened. It was all my friends. There, there were all these people that I worked super well with. You were there. Dickie was there. Uh, they, Gosh, Turkey was on our team. Uh, Deeks, it was it was huge. Uh, it was 
it was a strong, strong team. Kaji too. Mm. And we, so I had a lot of like people I'm good fighting with and tight fighting with. And I just immediately like grasped this, the, the moment and was like, Hey guys, I'm not here for me to be King. I'm here for us to win this. Like I want us to win this together. And I mean, that's said all the time. People like really cheesily turn around and like my men, but for some reason, (laughs) for some reason it was taken very seriously because I was just like, dudes, I want to win this. I want to win this for us, not for me, but because this is the hardest game type to do good at. Like even meat grinder, you're just, you're on your own, a bear pit, you're on your own and you, if you make a ringer, it's because you did good. Right. This this game type requires a ton of teamwork and effort mm-hmm. and moral compass, I think, because it was huge. We ran round after round after round after round, and we lost in, in a group of 15, 12 to 15 people per side. We lost less than three people every single round, and it got to the point where... I was like getting close saves. I remember at one point, Thumbs specifically was rushing in on me and <laughs> I can't remember exactly who it was. I know uh, Decom was one of them and uh, it was either, I think it was either Dicky or I think it might have been Dicky. But either way, Thumbs was coming in on me. I, I My life flashed before my eyes and both of them simultaneously, boom, boom, from two different angles hit him like seconds beforehand just like it and that was the emphasis of the entire fight was everyone was so mind linked just for the same goal of like not fighting for me but fighting for our group everybody had that good courage yep it was perfect outstanding yeah that is perfect and it's it's nice when it comes together because uh like well like you said it was kind of discussed beforehand everybody kind of knew the plan um, obviously the plan was to win. The plan should always be to win. Um, <laughs> but in this case, you guys had a clear idea of how to do that. Um, so yeah, you had the momentum on your side or we, I guess you said I was there. So you were, you were definitely <laughs> one of my bros in that one. I had the momentum. Um, well, the, well, the last thing that kind of governs how things are going in the turmoil of battle is the idea of formation. So when you're dealing with the concept of formation, I think that there's a, a number of different ways to kind of interpret this. Um, one of them is, is a classical way that we've I've been kind of interpreting this, which is to say, um, well, this is strength versus weakness. Um, and the strength would be somebody who gets a lot of kills consistently, somebody who who is a killing force on the field and a weak Weakness would not be that. So it's not necessarily a value assessment of a fighter. Uh, like I've said previously, I consider myself a weak fighter because I don't necessarily have the highest KDR. Um, but I'm really good at opening up things for my teammates. Um, so, but another way you could say this is some somebody who's like strength and weakness in numbers, strength and weakness in skill level, um, strength and weakness in... Um, time in grade, uh, like veterans versus noobs. Like there's a lot of different ways that you want to think about strength and weakness and make sure that that's a part of your formation planning because where you are weak, that's where you're going to suffer losses. Where you are strong, it's where you're going to be able to push. And so are you lining up weak versus weak, strong versus strong, or weak versus strong? Um, 
There's a lot of different combinations, a lot of different interpretations to this part of it. But in, in terms of formation, a strong formation is one that is united in purpose um, and one that knows what it's doing. A weak formation is one that doesn't necessarily know those things or um, has a good reason to leave, I guess, would be mm. another thing. A lot of times throughout history, people have been like, I don't really want to be here. <laughs> You're not paying me enough yeah. to, to be in this danger. And so that kind of like cowardice moving away. Um, anything else to say on formation real quick? That one's kind of self-explanatory. Oh, yeah. I make I make a lot of noises when you explain your version of that. And it's, and it's just an instinctual initial reaction. Because I'm not saying I'm a bad fighter. Right. That's what you uh, uh, have to... Even just in that situation, you have to remove that shock from it, or it's going to be hard for you to fill your role properly. Right. Just because one player is in that way weak in damage aspect and like kill takedowns doesn't mean they're not absolutely vital in facilitating another fighter's strength when they're taking down getting kill points. Right. Again, like my favorite thing to do as a shieldman is just to stand there and and make it so that my spears and my reds can do their work and get all the kills. I may not kill anybody in a whole fight, but I'll have watched 10 or 20 people die right in front of me. Um, A sound strategy. (laughs) So that's the ways that formation is. In the turmoil of battle, one needs to pay attention to deployment, to momentum, and to formation, and to all the things that those include. Um... And all of this comes toward the, the final point that Sun Tzu makes in this chapter. Um, and I tried to find a way of narrowing it down. I like my my on my outline to use uh, short phrases. You know, like the, the second section was formation and communication. That's what I have written down for it. But this this fifth or the sixth <laughs> section is using combined effort instead of individual <laughs> prowess. Wait, wait, let me interject real quick. What you got? What you got? This guy does not have notes he has bullet points he knows this <laughs> i mean i know a lot of this stuff conceptually very well in application whatever whatever you want to call it i'm i'm pretty i have a, a a decent grasp uh to put it modestly but this guy has bullet points <laughs> and he can he has his knowledge on this stuff is is deep within it's not it's stage four. <laughs> well, you know, taking a slight segue, I want to kind of talk a little bit about how information can sometimes be stored and, and possibly the reason why I remember things best this way. Uh, in high school, I did speech and debate. And my event that I did in speech and debate was impromptu. Um, so impromptu, the way the format works, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, you get five minutes to prepare a three to five minute speech. You don't know what on beforehand. You know that coming into your round, you're going to be handed either a political cartoon or a quote of some sort, and you are going to have to make a three to five minute speech on that. And you don't get a whole lot of time. You can't sit there and write out a bunch of stuff. You have to rely on the information you already have. So the way I organized things for that was you get a little note card and you write down an introduction, a couple words for that, just a couple words to spark what you want to spark in your head and release that information. Then you have your three bullet points. You put the your keywords there. They unlock that in your head. And then your conclusion is something witty. You might put a quote there or something you, you want to actually remember. And then the, that only takes 
30 seconds to a minute. So you spend the rest of your four minutes just memorizing those bullet points because I don't need to remember what the bullet points mean because that information is already locked. That's the key. The bullet point is the key. I just have to remember the key and I can find that information. Well, I I was, before I was going to say this, impressive, well done, and well practiced, but it's exactly, weirdly enough, it's exactly like what we're talking about. It is, yeah. Using it's, something from the outside to influence something new. Yeah. Each Each bullet point is a practice shot, and it's about the application. It's about how it comes out based on what's going on, especially if you're doing a debate. It's the same thing. It's a... Well, thankfully, I didn't. I didn't have to debate against anybody. That was. That's not what impromptu was. You just stood up and gave your impromptu. three to five minute speech. You didn't have to listen to criticism on it. You didn't have to hear anybody speak about it afterwards. You could speak about whatever you wanted to, and sometimes mm. I did. Uh, sometimes I felt that I gave a really good speech, and I didn't give it to the right audience. That was definitely something about mm. speech and debate that was unexpected. Because uh, my best speech I probably ever gave, I ended up getting a girlfriend because of this speech, by the, by the way. Um, Very nice. Um, was It was in October, so right about now-ish, and it, the, the event was down in Butte, and the quote was something along the lines of goblins and ghosts plague the night, and, and it, was, it was something like, like cheesy and campy about Halloween. I decided to spin that, that speech... And I gave it on Satanism and on the misunderstanding of Satanism, of modern Satanism within the modern context that when, when we think about Satanists, like actual today practicing Satanists, there's no child sacrifice. There's like, most of them don't even believe in God. Most of them are using a system of ritual and, and ceremony in order to exercise a certain psychological um, state. Um, hmm. but, but real Satanism is just as boring as Christianity or Islam or whatever. If you don't participate in it, it's just, it's just in people saying words that don't make sense to you. So I decided to give a speech on that, on, on how Satanism has been misappropriated and kind of misquoted throughout the years. I got a standing ovation from my competitors. I need to point out. My competitors gave me a standing ovation for this speech. There was a girl in the in the audience who was so taken by this speech and by my eloquence during this speech that she dated me when we ran into each other again in college. Um, <laughs> but I, I lost. I got very last in that round. Uh, Do you know why? Oh, what? Oh, because it was on Satanism? Because when I looked at the score sheet, my judge, I don't actually remember what his name was, but I remember his title. Father. Oh. Uh, <laughs> he was yeah. a priest. I gave a speech on Satanism to a priest. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, um, I know it doesn't translate. I wish we have no face cam, but if you can see the series of faces I made, knowing Malark, I just... <laughs> I just know how he thrives in these, like, uh, anti-hero situations, and I could see that happening. <laughs> And the other side, and <laughs> it was pretty beautiful. It was that was a double one eighty though. You're just like, oh, guess what? <laughs> Triple even. You're like, well, first of all, I gave it on this, and I'm like, oh my. And then you're like, and then this was the reaction. And I'm like, wait, what? And then, <laughs> and then I tanked <laughs> <laughs> because I gave the speech to a priest. Um, so I knew myself, but I did not know my enemy. 
things to be learned. Everything comes back together. Um, but yeah, so so when when Oni was referring to my bullet points here, that's why that works the way I did. I did four years of speech and debate and trained my brain to operate off of bullet points. And so mm. I just go through and make sure that I've got a lot of context. There's a big stack of books over here on the, on the thing that I go over before every podcast that we've done just to make sure that my bullet points are, are bringing up good information. I've gotten a few things wrong. So modest. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I have a great track record, I'm sure, right now. So, so you're not, you, you don't make a whole lot of definitive statements. I seem to be the one who's sitting here being like, well, you know, in 14107. Mm. Um, <laughs> touche, touche, good sir. 14107, that hasn't happened yet. I guess no. I could, BC, I could be talking about mm. BC, but there's not a whole lot of battle records from that time. I digress. Um <laughs> So we're moving into this using combined effort instead of individual prowess. I, I wanted to put teamwork, but I felt like that diminished the idea here, um, which is not just teamwork, but it's it's using that teamwork, again, with this idea of momentum to accomplish something in a real and physically measurable way. Um, and one of the best ways to, to illustrate this is actually using the opposite, which is to say henchman syndrome. Um, you all ever see bad fighting movies or like bad kung fu movies and you notice that the the hero comes breaking into the room and then as he does the bad guys who are all worse armored and worse dressed and have worse haircuts all stand up and they proceed to fight this hero who is by all accounts a badass uh, beyond degree um one-on-one one-on-one and 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 of course the hero having the higher skill beats one and then another and then another until they've gone through 10 or 15 guys and you're sitting there going, wow, Jackie Chan, you did so great. And it's like, well, not only because they, they didn't engage you all at once because they got this henchman syndrome. And so even if you, if you think you have more, even if it's not quite that bad, even if you're not fighting against Jackie Chan, it benefits to use combined effort, uh, in order to accomplish things. I'm, I'm sure that you've seen henchman syndrome, especially in our gladiators. We have to drill it out of them like their first six months because they just want to stand back and be polite and wait for the fight to finish. Or they're scared. Or they're scared. More yeah. the two. And you have to be like, you can't do that. You got to jump in there. Like, it's not a matter of being polite. It's a matter of supporting your teammate. It's not a matter of, of fear or not, because if you're jumping forward, hopefully somebody else is jumping forward too. And with that combined force, momentum, you can accomplish something together. Um, this, this coordinated effort idea has been used all throughout history. Napoleon was famous for doing it with cannons. Uh, but the idea of massing, I mean, uh, I think Thumbs and I talked about this actually a little bit on the episode he was on too. Um, uh, but this, this idea of massing firepower on one area and using that to break them and move outwards from that is, is absolutely huge. And, and it, it's, it's big in Bellagarth and it's big in 40K as well. Why use one, if you think, if you think that your character can, can take this fight, that they can wade into the enemy troops and take them, why not just be sure? Why not send some backup? Why not have somebody else rush in first? Like, there's no harm in adding more bodies. There's no harm in making sure that somebody has backup. Um, because it helps accomplish. And it can accomplish the goal faster with less casualties. Uh, the, the United States government uses the, the concept of 10v1. The, the army will not go to battle for the most part unless we got 10v1 odds. 
because that's how you win. <laughs> Straight up in many situations, especially when you're dealing with two skilled forces. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially if you're dealing with two skilled forces, this henchman syndrome has no place. Always oh, be doing something with the battle oh, buddy. It's too real. I mean, before, it, during Malark's last story, I was in, in flabbergasted with a giant, huge, shocked grin and <laughs> every range of that in between. And during this story, my face is... Stone cold, because this is a real thing. The worst part is that people laugh about this and joke about this. It's too real. Even in real street fight, like even in a real defense situation, people get so nervous and worried or, like you said, almost uh, over-honorable. Like, I'll let my, for whatever reason, I'll let my friend handle this or I'll let my partner take this. You're not doing them favors. No, <laughs> no, because this is a, a, a life-threatening situation. Like you should not, in this case, the, the winner is the one that stands. If yep. you, what is it worth if your partner or your friend dies because you're not jumping in? And what's worse, what if, because of your hesitation, you take that situation from being 2v1 to 1v1? Those odds are a lot worse. You're right. I, <laughs> I You know, I mean, your friend's safety is important, too. And, I mean, preserving the integrity of the team, trying to get to the end of the fight with as many people, that's, that's a huge goal. Um, but also not making it harder on yourself. Way to expose my one of my personal problems. <laughs> Uh, too real, too real, yeah. It's about that balance for sure, yeah. And that's why, you know, attacking together, moving forward together, using that bravery, that momentum together is that balance rather than one or the other. Because, I mean, like, for instance, Shy. I know a lot of people know a fighter named Shy. Um, he's not all that shy, by the way, not with his fighting. Um, and he's really yeah. good. We were, we were sitting there practicing or, or fighting at one point, single blue. I, I think he was taking a test of some sort. I can't, I can't remember mm-hmm. the, exa- I know it was, the, it was for the Pranakai, something to do with the goblins in Horde. Mm. Um, but we were fighting and we were going about 50, 50. Um, and I was, I was really, uh, well, for one thing, kind of happy with myself to be doing well against such a good fighter. Um, but also just kind of measuring my odds. And like the next time I saw him on the field, of course, my mind had adjusted to these new odds, this, this more 50, 50 mindset. Um, but there was a polearm nearby on my team and I'll be damned if I didn't recruit that polearm's help, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I think I can beat somebody. Like we've said before, there's always noob foo. There's always a maneuver you might not be thinking of. Uh, your certainty might be hubris. It never hurts to have a backup, to have a buddy to help you. Just put on pressure, if nothing else. Hundred percent, especially like uh, against a fighter like Shy, especially against a dangerous DPS. You know that you that. I don't want to give him time to think. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like you said, you. Not only is it about your friend, your friend, or in this case yourself, but it's about the others. It's about the whole. Right. You crip. Shy takes you down, and you're on an outward position. You're on a swing position. Your line's over. Yeah, he you're, just got that whole line. Yep. Congrats, you served it to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I know he'll, <laughs> he'll attest. I, 
the last couple times I've seen him, I mean, my best strategy against Shy was just locking. We just, <laughs> we just stood off and I waited, like, we made some shuffles and, like, prepped some shots, but we didn't even enter each other's range and I felt that was almost the safest thing until I could get teammates. You know, and honestly it can be because like you said, that gamble, you know, if you engage with Shy and you were to kill him, then sure, you get that open shot at his back line, but the same is true of the opposite. And so at that point, if you're weighing it in your head, it's almost safer to be like, you know what, we'll just stay here and kind of, you know, play kissy eyes at each other for a second. Uh, and then we'll see whose team wins. And then at that point, there'll be a fight. Um, but it does neutralize. It neutralizes that outside and you use yourself to neutralize it. And, and sometimes it's the most effective way to deal with a, a really good fighter who you can't coordinate against if you don't have, because if I've got friends, there's not a whole lot of people that I won't go against just because I know you can't block a sword that's coming from three different directions at once. Nobody can. It's just physically impossible. Yep. You might be able to block a sword coming from two different directions at once, but three, that's too many. There's too many directions. And so uh, the closer you can get to that idea, uh, you can bring down anybody. I tell our students that all the time when we're in gladiators and our students are having a hard time beating us their first couple of years. It's like, grab a friend. There's no reason you should have to fight us one-on-one. Oh, 100%. Um, have a friend. And that'll absolutely put you in a better position. So coordinated effort is about um, avoiding this henchman syndrome and using all of your combined energy instead of your individual prowess. It doesn't matter how good of a fighter you are. Um, mathematically speaking, it is better to approach things with a friend or with a buddy. Because uh, e- even in this situation with Shy, let's say you did beat him, but you got legged in the process. What advantage have you been afforded now? The words of my good friend Coop, was it worth it? Was it worth it? I don't think so. Not in that particular case. It might just be better to stand there and stare at him. I have the same answer. <laughs> and you know who might have been better off just standing there and staring was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. How was that for a transition? You like mm, that? I like very that. Very nice. <laughs> so our battle today that I'm going to be talking about and hopefully not butchering the name of is the Battle of Lengang... Oh, Lengangyo. Like, it's spelled L-E-G-N-A-N-O. But you're like the actual pronunciation. You're supposed to like flip the n and the g. Do you remember how it's pronounced? Langonyo. Uh. Langonyo. Something like that. Langonyo. Langonyo. Uh, yes. The battle of the day. It's not awkward sex tape this time. We're not talking about the awkward sex tape. Um, So this battle took place in 1176, the current era, on the 29th of May. Um, It was between, like I said before, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick I Barbarossa. Um, Real quick, this whole term, Holy Roman Emperor, Holy Roman Empire, it was actually German? For the most part, mm-hmm. they were just carrying over a lot of those Roman ideals of imperialism and eagles and looking very tough all the time and mm. that, that imperial cult. Uh, they really enjoyed calling themselves Roman, but um, they, in this particular case, they were attempting to uh, bring the vassal states in Italy back into line, including Rome. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of ironic. Um, so it was between this guy, representing the, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Lombard League, which was Italians, um, headed up kind of by Milan, um, and it mostly consisted of a bunch of town militia and their allies. So on one side, you had the highly trained, highly coordinated um, 
practiced and accomplished a Holy Roman Emperor, and on the other side you had peasants for the most part. Now, they, they don't even list when I was looking up this battle. They don't even list the commander. <laughs> That's um, not because they didn't have one. Um, so, that that's the kind of the setting. Um, uh, another thing you need to know about this, this time period is it came toward the end of the Viking invasions, but before the Hundred Years' War. And this period mm. of time was known as the, the Age of the Horse uh, by some historians. And it was so called the Age of the Horse because of all the horses. No, uh, because the horse dominated <laughs> the battlefield. Um, there wasn't a whole lot that could stop a full cavalry charge at this time. You had, you had uh, armored cavalry being used en masse uh, for, for some of the first times in this area. Um, this was before the age of knighthood as an official position, but a lot of these people were, were nobles or the staff of nobles. They were well-trained, um, and so this, this age of the horse took off. And so infantry were largely regarded as dead weight in a lot of ways and this mm. and this was a huge part in in Frederick's mentality coming into this battle because he had a much larger army before meeting the Italians here in Langano <laughs> you <laughs> you are battling yourself with that one. I am going to pick a better battle for the next time around something something in the American Civil War something I can pronounce. Um <laughs> but uh well, you know, the substance is what we're really digging for so. here. The battle in question. We're just going to call it the battle in question. <laughs> Very um, nice. So bef- before this, he had had a series of unsuccessful campaigns into Italy. But in order to become Holman, Roli, Holy Roman Emperor, he had gone on a series of very successful campaigns against vassal states toward the West. And so he was already a proven commander and, and thought that he knew what he was doing. And... I don't know if any of you have tried to cross the Alps. I have not tried to cross the Alps in any oh. sort of military sense. Um, Tons of times with my military bros. Physical sense at all. Oh, um, I... But, I mean, Hannibal struggled with it. Everybody has struggled with the Alps. And so he was struggling keeping open supply lines and getting people across the Alps. And he said, you know what? I don't need them. I'm just going to ride horse. We don't need infantry. We're just going to kind of leave them behind. So he had split his forces and was moving about with his cavalry, who he was confident could take on anybody. Um, now he was down here technically legally because Italy at this time was a part of the Holy Roman Empire, but because of this natural barrier created by the Alps and the rich, uh, nature of a lot of these areas, for instance, Milan was very rich, was Mm. a very profitable area to live, uh, very wealthy of its own right. Um, and so they often wanted independence. They said, why do we need to depend on this empire? You don't give us anything. We just have to send you stuff. We can support ourselves. So uh, the the uh, the Germans, Holy Roman Empire, had to come down and reassert their dominance often, which was the case here. And they were thinking it was going to be the same as it had often been in these cases. They were going to roll in, run over a bunch of peasants, and that was going to be the end of it. But it turned out very differently in this particular case. Because again, the norm for the time was that cavalry came in, rode over, and, and that was it. Um, so... Uh, you had a question, real quick. Oh no! Very similar to the uh, Mongolians of the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the the horse mounted combat, the cavalry is uh, mobility. It's power. It's a lot of good things, but it's not everything. Truly, um, and it's interesting to see the different solutions over time for this 
age of horse or wave, as you'd call it. For sure. And the solution here was what would be previously, um, before this age of the horse occurred, and later during the Hundred Years' War, which we've already touched on a little bit, um, was this idea of the infantry actually gaining dominance again. And it happened here because of momentum and also because of a lot of discipline. So uh, the Milanese, or the, the, the Lombard League, the Italians, had heard that Frederick had split his forces and thought this was the perfect time to go out and engage him. And they were right. Um, they encountered him as kind of a surprise. Their vanguard encountered the opposing German vanguard, and they broke fairly quickly. Um, but this, this early skirmish gave Frederick time to set his lines and really think about what he wanted to do, which was, in this case, charge across the open field. And that's exactly what happened. They charged across the field, and he breaks through the enemy cavalry, and he's moving straight toward the enemy infantry. Now, remember, he doesn't have infantry to slow him down at this point. He's just going forward with his his cav. Um, the Milanese cav have, have gone into almost a full rout at this point. They're just trying to get out of the way. But the infantry do something that was completely unexpected for the time. They locked their shields together. They pointed their pikes outwards and they stood their ground in the face of armored knights, or not knights, sorry, those weren't around yet. In the face of armored cavalry, they stood their ground. And of course, the cav faltered. Um, I've got a quote here from Machiavelli, not from the prince, mind you. I know that that's one of his more uh, famous works, but um, <clears throat> he also wrote An Art of War that I highly recommend. And he says here, if you argue that the fury from which the horse are driven to charge an enemy makes them consider a pike no more than a spur, I answer you that even though a horse has begun to charge, he will slow down when he draws near to the pikes and will either stand still or wheel off. And this, I mean, this is true. Nobody wants to run onto a sharp object. No. Uh, when we were talking about the Battle of Agincourt, the same idea was, was used by the archers with actual pikes in the ground, but here by physical people, physical men, holding physical weapons. And so the cavalry charge founders. They can't, they can't really, the, the, the infantry don't have the mobility or the speed to be able to hurt the cav, but the cav are not able to do anything with their, mo- their momentum is broken with this stalwart shield wall. Straight up by nature alone. And so the cavalry, the Milanese cavalry, who had, who had been retreating, saw this, came back around, hit the flanks of the German cav, and that was it. Straight up, exactly what we're talking about. Seeing the need for flexibility, seeing the need and the opening. If they were not ready and prepared to do this, if they did not know that the troops were separated, if they did not, you know, weren't ready to play off the snap decision and the snap change that had been made, they wouldn't have been able to win. And they nearly killed uh, the, the the Holy Roman Emperor here. For several days after the battle, he was presumed dead. That was how fierce the fighting was and how, how solid this route was. Because as the German forces were falling back, they didn't have infantry to cover them. Yep. The Milanese cavalry were able to use their infantry as a screen as they maneuvered out of the way. The Germans didn't have that because they went full offense in this case. That was probably a really terrible ride. It was. Uh, and Frederick, again, survived the battle, uh, went on to rule uh, for quite a bit longer. But in this particular case, the it's just interesting that these peasants, basically these peasants, stood against uh, one of the best equipped, best trained forces of the time 
and were able to hold their grounds. That's that's and they did so through exactly what we're talking about. Their formation and their communication was important. Their line position and role were known. They knew they had to stand. And when they stood, the Cav knew they had to come back and hit the flanks. Mm. They had a plan, wasn't necessarily rehearsed, but it came out. Uh, they used this combination of oblique to direct to oblique. The Cav ch- uh, charged across in a straight angle. They were able to come across, but they hit the opposing line. The direct approach faltered and then turned into an oblique as the calf came back around. It flowed several times throughout the battle. And, they, and, then, and the winning side was able to make that flow work for them. Their momentum was great because they knew where to use it. This, this mild pressure created by the infantry on the calf was just enough for the opportunity for, for the Milanese calf to come around and hit their flanks. <clears throat> their timing would have had to be practiced. I'm not sure how, with their lack of training, they would have accomplished this. But, I mean, it was a fairly war-torn period. You imagine a lot of these people probably knew what they were doing <laughs> or well, had been brought up learning. I mean, in that in that situation, it would be heavily on, I mean, timing for the peasants would be, well, it's time to band together or we die. That's a good point. That's and. Good point. And the timing for the uh, cavalry at that point was um, seeing that the peasants that they had presumed were going to be absolutely destroyed had effectively made an opening. Mm -hmm. And without questioning, they moved on it. And with their combined effort, no individual prowess here. You didn't have an army of heroes. It was an army of peasants. But with their combined effort, they were able to turn away the Holy Roman Emperor himself. Well done. Using this concept of momentum that we've been talking about for the last hour and 45. Uh, <laughs> it's we, a heavy one. We keep running over and we're going to have to we're have to transition to being a two-hour show because <laughs> I just love talking about this stuff, you know? Too real. Well, um... I think that's all I've got for tonight. Anything else you've got? Mm. Next time you guys hear from me, I'm probably going to be speaking a few things in French and yammering on about French this and French that, about how much I miss French food, because I'm very much looking to the fromage. Oh, fromage. Uh, The cheese in France is excellent. Everyone says the bread, but hey, man, it's a party over there. It's not just about the bread. A culinary delight. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, and uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode on momentum. Um, if you'll give me a second to flip through my book, I'm going to find and tell you what the next episode is going to be on when we come back. Um, by the time that uh, we're recording again, everything should be up and running with the uh, production company and... Uh, with everything we need to do social media-wise, that we're actually being heard. You guys are able to to kind of have this conversation. So at some point, we're going to be able to get you an email. So you can email us your thoughts, concerns, questions uh, that you might have for the show. Um, next time, we'll be talking about the substantial and the insubstantial. Mm. But until that time, uh, this is Yaga Malark signing and- off. Oh. <laughs> Let's try it again. This is Yaga Malark. And Onishiro. There we go. Signing off.